Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Evan Horowitz from the Center for State Policy Analysis, and uh, somehow I've been given a second chance to host, this time with Marie Frances Rivera, president of the Massachusetts Budget and Policy Center, which, uh, if you don't know, is the premier progressive think tank in the state. I, I think of it as the premier progressive think tank in the state. Marie I Francis. hope so, Evan. You used well, to work here. <laughs> I used to work there, yes. Um, this is a different place. It's your place now. Yeah. It wasn't your place when I worked there. It's true. That's, you know, I'm interested. That's part of the reason I wanted to talk. And so thank you so much for, for joining. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. That's great. So give me a second. I'm going to set the stage a bit for a conversation. Okay. There's a certain um, rhythm to legislative politics in Massachusetts. And we have two-year sessions. So at the beginning of the session, you know, there are a lot of uh, ideas. There are a lot of, there's a lot of ambition. People have a lot of plans. They file a lot of bills. And then, you know, over time, there's some jockeying and people advocate and some things rise to the top. Um, but then there's this kind of long waiting game to see what's actually going to get over the finish line, right? And the finish line just kind of happened, you know, at the end of July. And some things made it to the end, but lots of things didn't make it to the end. You know, it's, it's interesting what did and didn't and where we are. And I just would love your thoughts on, like, this last two years and what happened and what didn't happen and how you feel about it. Our focus is really on creating equitable change in the Commonwealth. And we look at the state budget as a tool, a really powerful tool. It's $50 I mean, billion. The biggest bill, it's the biggest yes. bill every session, oh, every it's year. Billions, tens of billions of dollars, right? And the way that we look at it is, you know, we have lots of inequities in the state around income, racial, you know, people with different abilities. So how are we using the state budget as a tool for change? And so we're constantly looking at early education spending, K-12 through spending, spending on transportation, et cetera, housing, uh, to see how we're really using those dollars to drive change in every single community here in the Commonwealth. Yeah, and, but at any given time, there's a priority list of some sort, right? Can't do everything all the time. You can't, yeah. exactly. So, And many of the partners that we work with are doing a lot of advocacy, budget advocacy, right? And many, much of the feedback that they get from their local legislator is, well, we don't have enough money to open up that new early ed center, right? We don't have enough money to fix that structurally unsound bridge in our community, right? And that's very and granular so, stuff. It's like, exactly. there's this bridge over here, and we know it mm-hmm. can't take the loads that, it's, yeah. that it needs to take. Yeah, and, uh, and we know that um, a budget is you know, got two sides. So we have the spending side and we also have the inputs, the revenue, the taxes that go into it. So in order to expand the investments that we make, you got to expand the amount of money that you're putting into the budget, right? I mean, so, most of the time. I, I don't know if that's true. I, so one of the weird things about this last two-year yeah. period is that there really hasn't been any m- meaningful constraint on the revenue side because the state has had more money than it knows what to do with, basically. Yeah, well, I would... Agree with part of that, and I would disagree with the other part. There are different things happening, right? So, and I'll I'll get to my tax justice side of this (laughs) soon. Uh, But, you know, there's a lot of talk about the surplus and a lot of the federal funds, which, yes, there has been a large historic influx of federal money. That's certain, right? But the way that we budgeted over COVID, which makes a lot of sense, is that we did um, pretty conservative budgeting, right? Because there was a lot a lot of uncertainty. We didn't know that we were going to well, get I mean, billions of I'm one of those people dollars. that testifies and tries yeah. to figure out how much money we're going to get. So yeah, yeah for sure, it was conservative. Exactly. Yeah. We did conservative estimates. So if you're um, you know, starting from a place of a conservative budget and you're getting more money, and then you will have a surplus. I mean, that's true, but I think, well, yes. it doesn't even have to litigate. Yeah. It's both. Like, yeah, we had a conservative estimate and we exceeded that, but I think we would have exceeded even a very generous estimate. Mm-hmm. It was 
it was a tremendous amount of, I mean, that's, okay. Yes. That's how we've ended up in the weird, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. Yes. We'll talk about like yeah. tax rebates and, and how we ended up yeah. there. But it does feel like this session has been marked in a way quite different from earlier legislative mm-hmm. sessions by the fact that there wasn't a clear revenue constraint. Mm-hmm. That wasn't what was stopping lawmakers from doing things. Let's take a, take a particular example. Take, um, you, you mentioned like an early ed center, so let's mm-hmm. take early ed. There was some state additional sort of grants to stabilize early education, but there was also a big bill to kind of transform early education in Massachusetts. That didn't go forward, and I don't think the reason is that there wasn't money for it, right? Well, and lots of you could imagine that was the reason. Like, mm-hmm. no, how do we pay for it? That, that wasn't the reason. So I, I guess I'm kind of interested in that. Like, the things that didn't happen, yeah. they don't, it doesn't seem that money was the big constraint. What, what's mm-hmm. stopping the big things from, what stopped the big things from happening this year or this session? So... I, I am going to go back because I think that there are revenue constraints because even if we look at that early ed and care bill, um, it it was making it was proposing changes around the edges. But we know um, that there are huge waiting lists for early education and care. We have the second highest early ed costs in the nation, or first highest depending on what's what variable you look at. Uh, so yes, yeah, like twenty thousand dollars a year a family. Yeah, for it's massively care, expensive yeah. for for an infant a year. So it's Completely, and and many child care centers. I was just actually out in Northampton meeting um, with a board member and a former board member, um, Claire Higgins, actually that used to. Oh run, sure, uh, I know Claire. Yeah, the city, <laughs> and uh, they were saying that um, a child care center had to shut down because the amount that they were getting for vouchers from the state actually wasn't enough to keep their child care center operational. So we know that there are definitely revenue constraints, and that. At the level of the center, for sure, right? Centers are struggling to provide, well, to hire people Mm -hmm. and to provide the kind of care that they need based on the Mm -hmm. support they get from the government. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Um, So, so there are so so yeah, but they but they get much of that money from from state government. So, so there are um, there are big things that we need to do, and I I think that part of um, the reason why. There was such chaos, I guess, at the end of the session um, is because people are pretty short sighted about what's happening right now and aren't really um, looking at the long term and what we're trying to build. People, you mean legislators? Like legislators, um, the governor. You know, if you look at some of those MBTA reports and how, you know, federal reports and how scathing they've been around sort of the mismanagement and the lack of long-term and short-term, you know, foresight and how to balance that, uh, you know, it's just we're not having the real constructive conversations that we need to have to really solve these issues and to give ourselves enough time to, to actually have the conversations. I mean, yes, you have a two-year legislative session. Can you take a month to devote to a particular issue and just try to, you know, make this a transportation month, make September and October the education month? And just pass some things instead of waiting to the last. I kind of love how um, you put minute. it because I, that's like a totally hypothetical world where there's like a month where we focus on a topic and try to pass a bill mid-session, whereas the actual rhythm is we wait till the last month, and that is the everything month or the everything we can possibly do month, which is a totally different way of thinking about legislation. We, we crammed, we crammed for our college exams. We were late on delivering our college exams, and some of them we actually didn't hand into our professors. So, so I guess I like trying to bring these together—that kind of revenue question and the you know pace of legislation question and the why can't we do things in a, in a timely manner stuff. I, I wonder what you think about kind of what this says about 
progressive policy making in Massachusetts. Like, we went through a session where there really was, I mean, okay, set aside, were there revenue constraints? You know, we'd argue, there was a lot of revenue. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of revenue that could have gone to a lot of priorities, different priorities. And lots of it just didn't happen. And it didn't happen for kind of strange internal reasons or the lack of vision. But we're unlikely to have an opportunity like this. Does it feel like we really missed, uh, did it feel to you, as someone who runs a kind of progressive thinking organization, like we really missed an opportunity for kind of dramatic progressive change? I mean, I do. I, you know, there there is certainly money on the table, right? So that is not allocated at this point, whether it's state surplus money, whether it's the ARPA, the second tranche of the ARPA dollars, it still needs to be distributed. So, you know, and, and what I saw happening at the end of the session is that there was a lack of communication with various branches of government, right? And we need to... You know, and people really need that money. That mo- the, the money now, the money from the state surplus, the money from the ARPA dollars can certainly be used immediately to help people, of course. And we can have debates about, and that's what we did, we had debates about how to spend the money. But um, I think we just need to pace ourselves um, and really commit to um, meeting our deadlines. So it sounds like you haven't lost faith, though. Because like, one other way to take this is to say, man, if we couldn't do it now, we'll never be able to do it. Like, there, I, I, there's a way it could turn over into despair. It sounds like, not for you. No, I, well, we can't. <laughs> we can't. We have too many people that are relying on us to um, to have baseline well-being in the state. Uh, so we, you know, I still, you know, I think that there's a pacing to making decisions. And if we talk about the tax stuff, you know, um, I think there's a pacing to making those decisions and making major decisions and we're, you know, we're in a time where Governor Baker's a lame duck, so that plays into it. Um, so you say the tax stuff now, 62F yeah. in, in your head? 62F is right. part of it. So yeah. let, me, let, me, let me back up just yeah. for, for listeners. Okay, so we're going to – I mentioned earlier yeah. is something that didn't happen. Sorry, because Evan and yeah. I are like buddies, so <laughs> we're just talking shop. That's right. This is insider yeah. radio, <laughs> only for those of you who already know. No, we're gonna, let me just back up here. The other kind of thing that seemed like it was going to happen – at the end of the session was a big economic development bill that included a package of um, short and long-term tax cuts plus a number of investments some bonding, some stuff like that. So, you know, thinking about the future economics uh, of the state. And it came out rather belatedly quite late in the day that, in fact, the state was facing this kind of um, tr- maximum tax cap, right, that somehow we had earned enough revenue this year to trigger a very old law that said, nope, that's too much revenue. You can't have this much revenue. You have to turn around. You have to give this revenue back to people in the form of um, tax credits. And people didn't see it coming. Well, legislators, let's say. Legislators did not see it coming. I didn't see it coming. I'm embarrassed to say I didn't see it coming. Uh, And it derailed the economic development bill and is now an ongoing fight. Like, well, are we going to give? And it's a lot of money. It's something like $2.9 billion, I think, is the the current estimate. Um, That's a huge amount of money. And, you know, the governor's pushing ahead with plans to return this money to people based on this you know, law from the 80s. And that's what you're referring to. So Partially, yeah. Uh, okay, uh, among other yeah. things. Um, and so this was another thing, like lawmakers didn't see it coming and it derailed their plans and they waited until the last minute. And now we have this weird setup where money's going back to people. And is, I don't know, how do you feel about it? How are you thinking about that? I think that we need to look at it holistically, um, <laughs> which is, yes, it seems like the auditor is going to, is going to is going to say that the tax cap was triggered because right? that's one of the steps here. The yeah, auditor has the, to certify. The auditor has to certify it. Uh, so, 
if so, you know, that would be, you know, we could think about ways to legislative repeal that or change it. Um, but if, if we move forward with it, that's, you know, $3 billion back to the taxpayers. Um, that we also, you know, that some of it will be distributed to people who need the money, right? And we think that's important. If people need cash to feed their families, et cetera, that's super important. Um, but there's folks that maybe don't need that cash as much, right? And we have our T, you know, MBTA that's burning. We have, you know, early education expansions that we could do. There are lots of things that we could do, public higher ed expansions, um, assisting with, you know, people going into student debt, right? There are lots of things that we could do with that money. And we don't know how long, you know, we know that we've gotten this tranche of federal funding. We don't know how much longer that's going to, right? It's going to be another couple of years that we'll have this sort of federal funding at this level. Um, but we don't know what it's going to look like after that. Also, um, in addition to 62F, there were other tax cuts that, long-term tax cuts that were proposed, right? And that's the reason why a lot of this stuff blew up. Right, it's, it's part like, of the economic there development. Are so there's many, also... There were, were also cuts, permanent cuts to the state tax that were, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars a year that were going to be taken out permanently. Uh, there were also tax credits for low-income folks. So there were a lot of different moving pieces. In addition, in November, there's going to be the fair share amendment on the ballot, which would bring in a billion, right, 1.3 to $2 billion in new funding. There are a lot of, the point is that there are a lot of moving pieces and we need to know where these pieces fall before we start making permanent decisions or decisions that are pretty significant about our revenue flows. Uh, that makes sense. I, I guess the, the weird thing, from my perspective, maybe from yours, is to have this many moving pieces at a time when the session's supposed to be locked down. Like, yeah, I think if things were working, yeah, you know, most of the me- moving people—I don't know—mix my metaphors mm-hmm. um, would be locked down, sewed up. I don't know; they, they wouldn't be moving around. They'd be fixed in place. Yeah, we would have solved some of these problems by the end of the session or made final decisions. Mm-hmm. And it feels very strange here in well, it's September now mm-hmm. uh, to say no. The, there's all this uncertainty around it, and September one. Yeah, yes. it's, I, it's <laughs> September first, uh, and we don't. Well, when you're listening to it, it won't be September first, but the, now you know when we, how we record. Uh, all these decisions are still kind of floating. Um, and it gets back to like the kind of uh, limitations of the current pace uh, of policymaking in the state. Um, one thing we didn't talk about, and I think is also part of this weirdness, is waiting until the last minute actually gave the governor a tremendous amount of authority, right? Um, because yes. the, the way this works is you send a bill to the governor, and he has a certain amount of time to turn it around and veto parts of it. And if he does, then the legislature can say, can override that. Mm-hmm. But if the session ends before you can override mm-hmm. it, then the vetoes stand. Mm-hmm. And But the legislators know this. Everybody knows this. They yes. know the timing. They can yes. look at their calendars and backdate it and say, well, we have to get our bills passed by this date. Otherwise, we won't get a chance to override the vetoes. And even that didn't happen. It's, it's interesting. Well, I mean, in other states, so I think this should be an open conversation, you know? Like, does, does the way that we do business now work? Do we need to shift it? Let's bring people into the conversation. In other states... They have extremely limited sessions, right? They'll have sessions for, you know, I have colleagues from other places around the country where it's like a two or three month session, and that's when they make policy. You know, maybe that's not the right way for us in Massachusetts, but we can consider different ways of um, having a legislative flow that's responsive to our 21st century um, challenges and what we're trying to address. You, you mentioned you know, the Fair Share Amendment, the, the tax on people who earn over a million dollars in a yeah. particular year. 
And so this is another of the moving pieces that was never going to be solved in the legislative session. This is a ballot question. Yeah. And voters get to vote on it in November. It's, a, it's an issue that you work on. It's an issue mm-hmm. that, you know, that I work on that we both kind of mm-hmm. you know, care about the impact. And um, it's obviously connected to all these things. Uh, it's weird, I think, to find yourself in a situation where the state is saying, no, we hit our revenue cap. We have to give money back. And then also saying, well, we really need new revenue. Obviously, it's very different to say, like, we hit it in one year and actually we need new revenue every mm-hmm. year, which is the millionaire tax. But I think, you know, from a revenue perspective, mm-hmm. it's like we had this money, we weren't using it, and yet we want more money. Um, I, I, does, that, does it make you think differently about the value of the fair share of the millionaire's tax? I, I, I would say if I were to pull back big picture, what I see happening is that, you know, I'll go back to the investment side of things. Early ed, we've done, you know, some calculations there. Early ed needs billions of more dollars in order to make sure that everybody and every young person in the Commonwealth has access to affordable early ed, right? Uh, if we look at public higher ed, in order to make community colleges free so that our young people are equipped with the skills they need to be part of the workforce, right? Um, and even if you look at four-year public higher institutions, right, ensuring that professors are paid well, that the campuses are state-of-the-art, that kids aren't taking on tons of debt with tuition and fees, that costs billions of dollars. In order to fix the problems that we have with our, you know, greater Boston area public transportation and also even looking further out, the state is huge, right? And there are transportation issues all around the state that are different. In order for us to address those problems, perhaps we have a, um, you know, a surplus on the books right now in this calendar, whatever, this fiscal year. Uh, but we have to look at what's the 10-year plan, what's the 20-year plan, our infrastructure's crumbling, right? So what mechanisms are we putting in place? What revenue streams are we putting in place that are fair in order? So my, my mind doesn't change because we've had COVID and all this federal funding came through and our economy's like a little funky right now, right? It's totally. acting in ways that yeah. are very unpredictable to economists all around the globe, no, right? We don't know fluky, what's happening. It's a very fluky <laughs> We don't uh, know what's moment. happening. It's crazy, you know? And well, I, I think, yeah. I think what so, I have in mind is something like a little bit different, which is like, it, given what we saw this session about how legislators use money when they have it, what makes you confident that they would use the millionaire's tax revenue in the ways that you're laying out? So, like, you so can imagine be, a world. To be completely yeah. honest, I'm not confident. Okay, okay. <laughs> I am I am confident, but the way that our democracy should work, right, is that people, the billion, you know, the millions of people that live here in the Commonwealth, should be informed about what's going on, right? And there should be avenues for them to... Um, put pressure on their local rep or put pressure on their local state senator, your congressperson, et cetera, to say, hey, I know that we have this money, right? I also see that there are potholes on my street. I also know that if the Fairhaven Bridge closes down, I'm not going to be able to get my kid to high school in the morning, you know? And so what are you doing about that and putting that local pressure on? So, you know, I don't, I don't trust any one particular person to get things done. You know, it's a conversation and accountability that needs to happen. And that's part of the work that we do at Mass Budget. We say, here are the stats. Here are the facts. Uh, this is how the process works, right? And this is how you and your voice, um, no matter if you are, you know, a, a young person, an older person, black, white, etc., you have a right to be part of this 
this process by voting, by reaching out to your legislator, um, and just being civically engaged, and that's that's the rub. I feel like I fed that to you. Like it was a perfect segue to my last question, which is <laughs> this organization and your sense of responsibilities for the organization. What's it like running it? So you were there before, yes. right, in a deputy role. You've taken over. You're part of a kind of, I would say, like a, a generation of younger people that is taking over some of these, you know, the Municipal Research Bureau and uh, Rappaport and the kind of younger people coming in and taking over some you know, really established organizations. And, you know, I wonder, what's your feel for it? Are you... Yeah, how's it's, it treating you? It's it's great. I mean, we have at Mass Budget, we have a very intergenerational, multiracial, um, span religion. You know, we have a very diverse team of people uh, who are really committed to seeing change. Many of them have grown up in Massachusetts, right? Like me, I grew up in New Bedford, uh, so we're very committed to seeing, you know, people in our communities really thrive. And so, and we work closely with partners that also want to see the same things. And, uh, yeah, we're committed to doing things differently. Like, we want to see the legislature operate differently and be more responsive to people. We want to see anti-racist change, right? We don't want to see uh, one in five black kids suffer from anxiety and depression. And, you know, it's Massachusetts is, you know, and a lot of these big picture stats, right? You see Massachusetts is number one, right? We're number one in education because we have just, you know, we're, we're, we, we have pockets of prosperity in Massachusetts, but it's not widespread at all. Um, and, and we can see that if we go around to our gateway cities and our rural areas. So we're all very committed to that change. We're all um, smart people, very dedicated. Uh, you know, you worked at Mass Budget and did amazing things, and we've had people over the years um, really help us build the the infrastructure and the, the kind of intellectual capital that we have now to really make change. Well, that's Marie Francis, the yeah. Rivera president of the Massachusetts <laughs> Budget and Policy Center, praising her staff and yes. demonstrating her commitment to her mission. I appreciate you coming yeah. on and talking about and partners like Mass Inc. and and you all at CSPA. So oh. we're all we're all trying to make the change. The ecosystem, uh, the ecosystem. for better <laughs> politics and policy in Massachusetts is thriving. Uh, that's always what we're talking about. And it's great to have you on and talk about these things and, you know, for you to share a bit about, you know, your frustrations with it and your optimism and your work. So thank you so much. Yes, thank you. Don't hit that stop button just yet. We've got more. It's me and Bruce Mole talking about transparency. Great conversation. See you soon. It's a double header on the podcast today and a bit of a role reversal too because my guest is the guy who usually hosts this thing the longtime editor of commonwealth magazine bruce mole bruce it's a uh, weird to have you great to have you and also role reversal yeah good to be on the other side of the mic from you i i could try out my evil laugh and like talk about how the tables have turned or something well we'll skip all that all the dramatic stuff that i want to do um because what i actually want to talk about is the story you did on uh, Maura Healy, um, uh, Attorney General, Presumptive Governor, or however you want to, whatever, however you want to refer to her, uh, and her decision not to share the questionnaires she's filled out for various interest groups. So, I mean, maybe start just kind of set the stage. What are these questionnaires? What are we talking about? So, when people run for office, uh, usually statewide offices, I think mostly. 
there's a variety of special interest groups that send them questionnaires and ask them questions about issues that are important to these groups, uh, from abortion rights to progressive groups to union groups to you name it. There's, there's usually a group and they're asking questions. And the candidates, in order to get their endorsement and support, fill them out. Um, so it's like, would you would you vote with us on this? Would you vote with us on this? Would you support us on that? Is it that as concrete as that or vaguer? Yeah, the Mass Teachers Association is, gives a little preliminary thing. Do you support the MTA's position? Yes, no. And, and then you can also not answer and put in your own answer if you want. Uh, you know, there's options. But yes, it gets very specific. And it's been going on for a long time, right? This is not a new thing for 2022. These questionnaires go back, I don't know, decades. I have no idea. I think they've been going on, uh, yeah, decades is fair to say. So why are we talking, like, what's different? What happened? Why are we talking about them? Well, what happened is um, Chris Dempsey, a candidate for state auditor, uh, sort of to gain an issue about transparency, said he was going to release all of the questionnaires that he had filled out. And that's not that's not normal. Usually they're secret or they're private or they're held by the organizations or something like transparency has not come up as a consistent thing here. Or has it? I, I, I think uh, it's sort of been like out of sight, out of mind for reporters and others thinking about this. But Chris sort of brought it into the spotlight and said, you know, I've, I'm answering all these questions. I should be transparent and let voters know how I'm answering these questions. And at first, I didn't quite, it, again, it's standard practice that these are interest groups doing their thing. So I didn't really pay much attention. But as I thought more and more about what he was doing, it was more interesting how these very specific questions, uh, how, how did the candidates answer them? And if you have both candidates answering them, then you can really start to drill down and sort of see how they differ. And um, in the auditor's race, it was, it sort of blew up because uh, Diana DiZoglio uh, said she was going to release hers too, but then sort of turned it into a fight about these this one abortion rights group didn't want it theirs released for, for various reasons. And so she said it became an, an abortion fight at that point. And in some ways, it's like the perfect fight in the auditor's race because nobody knows what the auditor does anyway. Like, the, what are they campaigning on if not some made up thing about transparency? But it's trickled into the governor's race. But before we get to that, let me ask, I guess it's sort of weird to me or feels weird to me that they weren't ever or like regularly released because... Otherwise, it just seems like an opportunity to pander. Like if a, if a group, okay, say I'm running for office and, you know, a group asks me, an interest group asks me to fill out a questionnaire, but they're not going to tell anybody about it. I'll just tell them whatever they want to hear. Or why wouldn't I just, why wouldn't I just tell them whatever they want to hear? I mean, am I thinking about this wrong? Uh, no, I don't think you're wrong. Um, I, you, may, you may be wrong in certain cases. That may not be what the candidates do in some positions, some cases, but I think with the case with Healy, it's interesting. So initially, I asked her if she would release her questionnaires. And her campaign sort of said, go check with the groups. It's up to them to release them. So you, you initiated this. You went to them and said, look, this transparency thing is kind of interesting. You know, are you going to do it too? 
And particularly, um, I mean, you, you've talked about this with other guests. Um, she's running unopposed for the Democratic, in the Democratic primary, and she's a heavy favorite to win the, the election. So here she is sort of coasting along doing press conferences out in the, you know, the hinterlands of Massachusetts. No one's really pressing her about anything. Here's a way that you could sort of see where she stands on some stuff. No, it's an interesting idea. You had like a like an entry point to her policies. You're like, wait a minute. She there are all these questionnaires, and maybe she's already answered a bunch of policy questions, and we can get access to those. Right. And so um, I asked her. They referred me to the organization. Said it's up to them to release it. And I went to one of them, the Mass Teachers Association, yeah. and they said, no, it's up to the candidate to de decide. So I went back, and then. The Healy's campaign said, no, we're not releasing them. Um, and so it, it you know, it's, a, it's just a lesson in, um, you know, I tried, I failed. Uh, but if you, if you have two candidates, like in the auditor's race, as you said, it's, it's people don't know what the auditor does. But there is one issue that has sort of broken into the public consciousness a little bit. And that's that the auditor is the one that decides if the state wants to privatize a public service, it has to go through this process with the state auditor. And public unions, public sector unions do not like this process. They, they want to block privatization because that costs them union jobs. And so what the auditor feels about this law, it's nicknamed the Pacheco law for the state senator that filed it originally, what they feel about that is sort of an interesting discussion. And so I've been waiting this one union that's very interested has not, Desoglio has not released that form yet. Uh, whereas Dempsey did, and he, he he's pretty with the unions too. And I, Desoglio I know would probably be totally with the unions, but it, you might get a nuanced difference there. And on the Mass Teachers Association, the two, Desoglio said, yes, I support the MTA on, everything uh, and and which is not surprising given her pro-union stance and Dempsey on the question of uh, standardized high stakes tests didn't answer yes or no he gave a more longer explanation saying he's very interested in the issue it was, it was friendly to the idea that we may do need to do something different but not yes so this is a case where it sounds like you look at the questionnaires and you really you can learn something and about the candidates and their positions. And it explains why you sort of wanted to go to Healy to find out uh, about her questionnaires. I, I guess I'm kind of interested in a few things. One is the dynamics of like, nobody knows who has the authority to release these things. And like the campaign said, no, ask the interest groups. And the interest group said, no, ask the campaign. It's, it's, it speaks to how ingrained this process is and how longstanding it is that they don't even really talk about the ground rules of it. Like, you know, you're a journalist. If you had a questionnaire that you sent to somebody, you would have a ground rules discussion like this is off the record, this is on the record, I get to share this much or not. I mean, it's a standard part of sharing information. It, does it strike you as like surprising that the ground rules aren't known here? Or it's just that nobody's bothered? This has never been an issue before. So it's, it's raising all kinds of new concerns. It is very surprising. And the, the issue that I sort of mentioned casually was this one abortion rights group does ask that it be kept private. And I I couldn't get a good explanation as to why, but then they gave me a somewhat valid explanation. They say, when people are filling out our questionnaires, these are candidates, they often give either personal experiences or the experiences of people they know 
sort of on the assumption that this is private, that they're not going to disclose that they've had an abortion or they, their wife, you know, whatever they're wanting to keep secret. So they said, we'd just like to keep them private. Whether that's true or not, but that's, that's the explanation they gave, yeah. which has some merit to it. But it, whether where you stand on this particular law doesn't seem like that would be a, or this particular issue or whatever, doesn't seem to be a private thing that should be kept from the public. Yeah. I mean, it, it's very strange because it, it's easy to kind of get worked up about transparency and how important transparency is. But I think, you know, in politics, there's also, there are strong arguments for privacy and people being able to express themselves honestly under different conditions. Well, again, like as a journalist, you know this, right? It's often very helpful to have conversations that are off the record. And you might say, well, no, this is misleading people. But but as part of the information gathering process, those conversations can reveal bigger truths or lead you in important directions. And the secrecy is essential to to that. Um, so, and I, you know, I have my own experiences. In fact, I think I talked to you on, when, when, we, when our roles were reversed and I was on the podcast you were ho- hosting about the Unemployment Insurance Commission and how I thought the, ex- the excess of transparency in that process actually stymied the process, the reason we couldn't get to uh, reform of the system. So I wonder, separate from your question about, like, wouldn't it be nice if we knew more about Healy's position on things, if there's some virtue, you think, in keeping these things private so that candidates can have kind of more honest conversations with interest groups or, or I don't know how, how you feel about the privacy side of things and, and its value. Um, I don't think a questionnaire is the place to have these quote unquote conversations. I think, I think this is the attempt by the group to sort of pin down the candidate on where they stand on particular issues of importance to that group and that's going to, you know, dictate how they endorse or don't endorse. Um, and I, I think if you want to have that private conversation, you have that private conversation. You know, the head of the union calls the candidate. You have let's off the record talk about things. That that I don't have a problem with. But this is a clearly in most of these cases they're surveying all the candidates that are running for the office. So. Uh, I don't think it's a private, I, I don't think this one's a private conversation, the actual questionnaire itself, the whole process of winning endorsements. So, are, I mean, I guess the obvious follow up, are you done then? I mean, you think these things, you think these things should be more public? Are you done pushing or asking? Are there other avenues here to pursue? Well, Healy sort of made her point known. I would probably, uh, as we go to this, next phase after the primary, I, I do think there's a few offices that um, I might be interested in. Many of the offices have, you know, there's like the Secretary of State, I'd be interested in what questions they ask the Secretary of State. And so even like even just to know what the questionnaires look like, forget the answers. Like what? Yeah, because it tells you something. That's interesting the way you say that, because it tells you something not just about the candidate, but also about the organizations that are putting together these questionnaires. You, you gain some insight into these groups. Right, right. And, and some of it you can guess, like a progressives of Massachusetts, they're going to ask, you know, way to the left type questions. How far are the left? I'm, I'm, I'm making this up, but they're probably trying to peg where you are on the political spectrum. But for these more jobs that have nitty gritty rules, certain groups will have very specific questions that could be revealing about what, where the candidates stand on things. Do you think you think it's as a in the getting back to the auditor's race for a second? Do you think it's as a defining question there? Like, is this one of the things that that ultimately will help voters decide who they're going to vote for? 
Like, is this, is this, uh, I guess my question is, is this kind of a side issue that journalists care about, or is this actually really affecting races this year, this question about whether questionnaires are coming out and, and the pressures around that? No, I think it's a, it's a side issue. <laughs> I'll ask again. I, I want a different answer. I'll ask. No, <laughs> sorry. No, I think, to be honest, whenever the statewide races are held, the auditor's race, I don't think most people even know, as you said, they don't even know what the auditor does. Uh, and the auditor candidates, I think, are making wild claims about what they can do with the office, which make it sound very important and does all these things. But the the current state auditor has said almost all that stuff I can't get into. I have a very strict, you know, statutory purview that I have to follow. So yeah, then the newcomers say they want to change that. They want to be different. Uh, so that's all good, but it's confusing and um, uh, particularly in that auditor's race, you have two, in the Democratic primary, you have two very attractive candidates with strong stories to tell. And I think that if they, if voters hear that, that's going to be more persuasive than the issue of questionnaires. All right. Well, I'll just make this pledge to you then, which is that if my organization ever starts sending out these questionnaires, we'll do it uh, in public and transparently, and uh, we'll give them right to you. Uh, so you have access to all the candidates' answers. I appreciate it. Thanks. (laughs) That's Bruce Mole, the longtime editor of Commonwealth Magazine. Bruce, thanks so much for uh, joining me. Thanks, Evan.